Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Recently, with the drought in most of the world, but specifically in the Central Valley in California, there has been a reduction in lettuce. And lettuce, in terms of the yield, the drought has pushed it down over 15%. And there's still room for it to go down more. In 2020, yields went down by 30% because of lack of water. Um, the high temperatures are actually causing the vegetables to decay faster, which is reducing shelf life. And their high temperatures have caused, you know, physical damage to the plants as well as increased pest pressure. And finally, there's only so many hours you can have laborers in the field when it is that hot. So for all of these reasons, grocery stores are really struggling to keep lettuce on their shelves and... I thought that this was a huge opportunity to go back to where you and I met, Peter, on this hydroponics topic and locally sourced food and indoor ag and a solution to climate and labor issues. So you've got this crop that's really high value. Coincidentally, because it's high value, it's already grown indoors. And so we're growing it in everything from, you know, high tunnels to high-tech greenhouses to indoor vertical farms. So it's something that growers are used to. And now on the buyer side, the grocery stores are desperate for reliable sourcing, which doesn't exist. And so they're much less worried about the price point. So it just feels like this huge opportunity for indoor ag to say, hey, look, we can supply it. We don't have all the problems. And now that the price is so high, we're not that much more expensive. So come try us out. It, that's a great conversation point, Michelle. And now going back over the time you and I have spent together and all the topics we've discussed, we have had this as a recurring topic. And, and that is, let, let's just say leafy greens. I've asked you repeatedly, um, well, the, the comment that, that you've heard from me, the question has, has been for three years, why does our food have to be so cheap that, that local farmers can't afford to, to, to grow them? All right, so that is a backdrop. Now, we also, two of us, walked through the pandemic together with our podcast, and we concluded that uh, farmers did better than what we were expecting as, as the uh, pandemic was settling in. And then that brought on the natural question that you asked, Michelle, and that is once we clear the pandemic, how much of the uh, new business that the local agriculture um, players experienced, how much of that will remain as permanent versus how much will just revert back to the system before the pandemic. And that's always been a, a it's, it's been a haunting question for me because as a local agriculture advocate, I, I want to take those gains, grab them and hold on to all of them, not give them back. Now, we've also talked about, you've heard me ask the question to you as an economist over and over, 
what has to change in the basic equation for something like lettuce to be more profitable in a local CEA greenhouse production system. And, and I've, I've remained convinced or of the opinion that the equation is going to change as the future arrives, meaning the dynamics will change. So you're bringing up this morning that, okay, if it's climate change, if it's the heat, if it's the uh, drought, okay, that might be changing the basic equation. So, so that's reinforcing what I've been thinking. You know, can we make local agriculture more profitable? So I don't want this to sound like I'm happy to hear that the California, Arizona farmers are having trouble. I'm, it's, I'm not pleased to hear that, but it does appear to be handwriting on the wall, right? That the, the water is not going to become more plentiful. It's going to become less plentiful. And the temperatures are likely going to remain high or increase even further. So for those of us that, that don't see this as a, a zero-sum game, Michelle, where local is going to win completely or industrial is going to win completely. If if we are of the opinion that we all need each other to feed the world, then I'm, I'm hearing you in interpreting it as saying in my brain, okay, the, the, the equation, the ground is shifting as you, as, as I have felt it might in the future. So, so now the, the algebra changes a little bit and now we're more in favor of the small farmers and growers. The point you bring up before I hand it back to you, just from plant physiology perspective, Michelle, the stressful environment of growing that head of lettuce, you nailed it. The shelf life, the stress, the pests, uh, all of those things come into play to a greater degree. So that's handing a silver platter to the local agriculturists saying, okay, let's let's build the brand around this. Let's sell these features. But then I'll end by asking you that same question. If the drought is um, re relieved a bit, is everything just going to go back to the way it was? Are these local farmers then going to go out of business? So I'll just let you go on that. Well, I think to answer your question, you have mentioned several times leafy greens or other vegetables. What does it take to be profitable in a CEA or in a local system? And I think that the question in my mind isn't necessarily what does it take for that one item to be profitable? I think what you're asking more is what does it take for these farms to be successful or sustainable and function? And to that, I think the answer is that price can't be the most important feature. When price is the most important feature and you're able to get these scale and reduce your costs and get rid of some of the externalities potentially, then you see that these places in, in lettuce, it's Arizona and California, are able to capture the market. And since we have seen concentration across agriculture. There are a lot of people and a lot of brands and a lot of labels that want to say price is not the most important thing. And whether it's organic or non-GMO or local or sustainable or humane, like all of these 
labels are trying to say there is something more important than just price. And if you want these things, buy this other product. And you've seen the trickle, maybe it's growing, but you see a percentage of the population that buys into that. And there is a market for it. Overall, we haven't seen a huge change in the dynamic because there are a lot of people that are price sensitive. So in order to get the larger population, we've now run into buyers for the grocery stores saying, we need product, right? We don't care about price anymore. Mm -hmm. We need product. And some individuals are going to continue to buy at that higher price, but they don't necessarily care where it's coming from. So I would say you've siphoned off the people that care about these other attributes besides price, helping their local farms, you know, the economic impact, all of these features. And now you're left with that huge chunk in the middle that go to the grocery store, don't necessarily care. And the person or agent or buyer representing them is the grocery store buyer. And the grocery store buyer is saying, I don't care about price. I need something on my shelves. And so I think that is what is causing the shift. It's I don't care about price. I want this other thing. And right now, California and Arizona can't offer that. And so then to your next question, how much reverts back? I think that right now with this current leafy green situation, it kind of parallels the pandemic. Like, yes, when prices go down, I would expect some to transfer back to California and Arizona. But I think the pandemic shows us perfectly. We have no idea what comes next. We had no idea that there was going to be an extended lockdown a huge demand for consumption of goods, this total change in it at home versus grocery versus restaurants. Six months later, a huge shift backward. And then a year later, inflation. And so as much as we want to say the world is going to go back or what's going to happen, one, the longer the change happens, the more behaviors change. And local systems are going to be able to invest and build greenhouses and increase their production and drive those costs down. But two, what's going to come next? Is there going to be regulation and no water in California? Yeah. Then it doesn't go back. That's right. Those are excellent points. And, and I think as we've shared uh, our thoughts on, on the Colorado River Basin and and some of this, uh, you've done some research and, and you've had um, work professionally in, in that basin about water and economics. Um, yeah, that part's not going to get better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and I will remain convinced. It's going to take a lot to change my opinion on this. If, we're, have, if we have a war over fresh water between municipalities populations and agriculture, the municipalities are going to win. So we're going to have to find these alternative ways of producing the, uh, the, the food that we eat. And, you know, as you were discussing a minute ago, Michelle, it kept popping up in my mind, how many times have you and I stressed how smaller growers and operations are more nimble and, and it's easier for them to turn on a dime so perhaps what you're saying is, okay, you s- small local farmers, 
this is the time, you know, it might be two or three years now where you can make hay with leafy greens and lettuce. It brings back my teenage story that you've, you've brought up a couple of times where one year we grew cabbage. My father let my brother and I grow cabbage and we hit it, struck it rich. And then he said next year, no, you can't grow cabbage because everyone else is going to grow it, right? We've, we've shared that story. I can't say it without chuckling. So maybe now we're, we're saying to the local CEA, um, okay, change your systems over, do what you need to retool on the fly. Now's the time to make some money with lettuce. But oh, by the way, we not, we're not sure this is going to be permanent for you. So be prepared, don't hold on too long. That brings back comments I've made about shrinkage, Michelle, and how important it is to get into a crop, but even more important to know when to get out of the crop so we don't throw stuff away or dump it at, at discount prices and, and lose profit that we've accumulated over you know X number of crop cycles where we thought we were making money. This is all really cool stuff. So perhaps, now let me layer in one other thing. We've talked in the past about aquaponics. And we've come to a conclusion that most of our farmers of uh, edible crops, our plant farmers, many of them don't want to have to learn how to raise fish so that they can have this loop system where the fish um, waste is generating or becoming the fertilizer for the crop. So if, if we're saying to them, okay, you don't have to learn how to grow another crop, you know, animals, to go along with your passion of growing plants, right? That's one thing, Michelle, that's a big thing that some farmers just don't wanna to have to do. But if we scale that down to today's conversation and say, all right, you may not have to grow lettuce or you may not be able to grow lettuce, so figure out some other crops to grow. Okay, that, that's easier for a crop farmer, plant farmer to shift from plant to plant it's a lot easier to do that than it is to bring animals into the, the equation. And, and you've made that point wonderfully over the years that many don't want to have to worry about that. So yeah, this is all cool stuff. And, and again, it's, it's reinforcing our message that bringing some of industrial agriculture back to the local community and the small farm is economically sound. Yeah, and to a point that we made in the last episode with John Laporte is we were talking about buying inputs and can small growers compete? And I think that this is sort of one of those points where the answer is yes, there is this advantage. And the we talk about small farmers being nimble, small businesses being nimble, and I'm not sure that's always clear to people how nimble plays out. And so in this case, I would argue that somebody that wanted a couple fish for aquaponics or wanted to add some lettuce to their operation, if you need a couple thousand seeds or 10,000 seeds or, or some number that is manageable to purchase easily, you can decide pretty late in the season, yes, there's a shortage of lettuce, I've still got two months left. I'm going to grow a cycle and go buy 10,000 seeds. If you are a huge operation and you need hundreds of thousands of seeds, you needed to contract that early. So you don't have that ability to, to adjust because the slack doesn't exist in the market. And so for this very specific example, 
some of the local growers that want to take advantage of the high price now have the opportunity because their business can be manageable like that. They can hire a local expert to help them get lettuce off the ground and not have to go through a hiring manager in 12 steps. And so I just want to bring that back for a second and point out ex concretely what nimble looks like and and why it's beneficial in this specific case. That's a great point. Perhaps in the future, we can find a farmer or two that might want to come on the podcast with us to talk about just this concept of being nimble and being able to change. Talk about some farmers and what that means to them. What what did they do? You know, it brings to mind a story that we've told this past year in several episodes due to supply chain shortages where we've heard some large growers are building warehouses just to buy containers two years out. And we talked, John, at Michigan State about this, this whole concept. And now, isn't it also possible, Michelle, that when two years comes and they've got this warehouse full of containers, the supply may have loosened up in two years and they're sitting on all this money that they spent and perhaps containers in two years will be less expensive than they are. So, so that's where the, the, the big grower may be uh, winning, beating the system by putting up the warehouse where a small grower can't afford to put up a building. But then there's also a double-edged sword there that he or she may might be looking back in hindsight. Well, it's like playing the stock market, right? It's it's all risk and gambling. Well, and that's why during a stable period, it's okay to put up the warehouse. You have low interest rates. You're able to purchase. The price hasn't you know jumped to extreme levels on either end. And so the big bet business has the capital, has the ability to make this investment because the market is stable and you can forecast out. On the other side, we are not living in the most stable period in the last, you know, 50 years. I think it's probably one of the least stable periods since the 70s. And so that is a point where these big investments are a challenge and you know and an, an example not for our market but heard on the radio yesterday the biogen company one of the coronavirus vaccine manufacturers sold several floors of lab space in cambridge for 600 million dollars they've agreed to lease it for the next five years or six years but it was an Alzheimer's drug and maybe some COVID stuff. They couldn't, they can't guarantee the revenue moving forward to justify that space. And so while having fixed space with a, you know, ownership that's going to appreciate over time was really good when the market was stable. They don't have as many people in the office, which they never expected. Their Alzheimer's drug didn't take off the way that they were hoping to. And so now that huge lab space is a liability and they want to lease just like somebody that is leasing, you know, land. And so generally we, we, as a society, as businesses think we want to own everything. And during times of change, we, we don't, we don't want to own it. We don't know what's going to happen next. And so we want that ability to shift. <laughs> We relinquish some of that responsibility of ownership and 
uh, yeah, some of the benefit that goes with it. Here, here's another uh, layer for today's conversation. And again, it's what brought you and me together, the economics and the production. So let's, let me just bring forward from our first year. If, if today we're talking about nimbleness again and, and being able to turn on a dime and change crops if we need to, re- recall some of my philosophy about new crops, Michelle, where oftentimes it takes more than one cycle for a grower to learn the nuances of a new crop. And my philosophy has been three cycles. The first one is to just try what you're doing and make it to the finish line. The second cycle is to make adjustments for your particular operation. And if that's successful, the third one, in my opinion, is as as important as the second, and that is just repeating the success. So once you get to that point, you can relax a little bit and say, okay, I've learned how to grow this crop. So in lettuce, if it's a six-week cycle, you can see where this is condensed and this, this learning process can happen in a fairly short period of time, you know, half a year to, to ramp up. So if the market and the problems out in California and Arizona for head lettuce are going to persist a bit, then a grower can easily say, yes, I can afford to take a few months to really n- learn how to, how to grow lettuce uh, in a CEA uh, setup. And then, again, I'll stress, as important as that is to learn how to ramp up and grow the crop successfully, it's as important, if not more, to recognize the marketplace that people like you can help growers understand and read the tea leaves, or recognize when it's time to get out when it's time to uh, cut back on the lettuce production in your local production facility, and then shift to different crops that are going to have higher value at the time, whether it's radishes, whether it's tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, you know, just understanding. And and if, if you approach this, Michelle, with the right frame of mind in that okay, diversity is good, it's exciting, you know, my life changes, my crops change. As ornamental crop growers, you know, we we know we're going to grow poinsettias through the fall months leading up to the holiday season. And then in the spring, it's a whole different set of crop species that we grow. And that's exciting to change from season to season. So if grower looks at it the right way and, and doesn't say, okay, I want to grow lettuce in nutrient film channels for the rest of my career, and I'm going to do that come heck or high water, um, that that grower is going to have, be challenged more. But the grower that, that says, wow, wouldn't it be cool to now shift over? What what other crops could I grow in nutrient film channels or, you know, without having to retool all of the infrastructure around the greenhouse or the vertical farm? What are my options? What's the flexibility? You've often heard me say that I think the limitation of agriculture and food crops is simply our imagination and our plant breeders are going to continue to deliver new and exciting things to grow. That's all. That's cool stuff. Yeah. And I love the way that you're able to break it down into the new crops and a a process for how to adopt it. And then it is, it's really hard to know when to get out. And you just mentioned the stock market. 
but most people pay attention to when they buy the stock. When did I get into it? Was it a good price or not? Nobody talks about when the right time to sell is. I don't know if it's just not as interesting, but it's just as much of a gamble of when to move out of it. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about trialing and dividing up your farm, you know, or your space into multiple crops. And maybe it's you start your next test of your radishes or your carrots or your something else as you're beginning to wind down the lettuce to reduce that risk. That's cool. Yes. I think every local farmer should have a corner of a field or a section of a greenhouse that is dedicated to new crops, exciting crops. Not a lot, just a little bit to dabble. Didn't you and I earlier this week, we, you came across an article on some research at UNH on kiwi fruit. And we talked about it and perhaps in the future, we'll invite a researcher on, on as a guest. And, and both of us kind of scratched our heads and said, who knew? <laughs> I didn't know kiwi is a Northern crop. I assumed it was tropical. Who, you know, who knew this, this is that imagination thing. So there's a project going on in New England at UNH on, on growing kiwi fruit. Cool. That's really nice. My granddaughters asked for them whenever I come back from the grocery store. It's just that fuzzy outside that I haven't mastered how to peel them yet. <laughs> the thing that I want to make sure that growers are paying attention to is drought, weather, labor, transportation costs, energy costs. Like These are all things that have created a perfect storm that is very problematic for big growing regions. Right now we're talking about, you know, leafy greens, but it's not just those. And so New England and most of Europe and most of China have all had droughts this summer and Canada. I would want to make sure that growers that are looking to take advantage of whether it's climate or labor or pandemic or, or any of these factors or new trends are paying attention to the risks that exist. And so I guess part of what I would think is also using some of your space and trialing, maybe not just other crops, but other ways to grow crops so you're ahead of the curve. If the energy prices were to spike, do you have a plan for less fertilizer? If we did hit peak phosphorus and you had to use a low phosphorus blend, are you ready? If you didn't have enough farm labor, do you have an idea on how to automate? If there were water restrictions, because I think that's going to be everywhere, not just California, or do you have a plan? Is it a recirculating system? Whatever. And so I guess I would also say that maybe it's not just crops we're trialing, but we're we're looking at a lot of these threats and adjusting practices so that we're ready for them as well. That's such a nice point to make, Michelle. And and it's something that as I look out and, and watch how colleagues are putting together some of their uh, educational information and how conferences are doing it, there's we need to do a lot more or a lot better with what you're saying. And I'm not sure let's, we, we can... Uh, um, between episodes, talk a little bit about creating the, the name, the descriptor of something like this. But yes, having 
scenarios where we're teaching small growers or at least facilitating a conversation or a discussion with them how to avert, how to sidestep unforeseen factors. That's very important. This, this is a great point. Just to have a group of growers and say, what would you do if a water ban restricted your, your water use? What would you do if fertilizer prices go from 90 and double to 180? What, what are we going to do? It's, that's a great point that you bring up. Well, and I think that hopefully we'll start to brainstorm some of these challenges. We've seen a lot of them in the last three years since you and I have been doing this, but I'm guessing that there are a lot more uh, that exist and paying attention to them. I think that it is actually a place where you really do need both the business side and the agronomic side. And it doesn't, it isn't just food crops. It's all crops or all production because there are a lot of threats to the business and they haven't been as challenging in the past. But how do you make a business decision that one can keep you in business and two supports your plants? Yeah. Well, you hatched this idea, so you're going to be the gatekeeper on it. But already I'm I'm seeing articles and conference session titles with a, a tagline like what would you do and and you're making such a great point it i i could see people like us your economics my production experience handling that question and and it's it's bringing different factors in you you would be saying what would you do if inflation continues to rise what would you do if some of these uh, inputs, these uh, utilities now, the prices skyrocket. And I would be saying, okay, what would you do if your production mix needs to change? If the crop cultivars or species need to change, what would you do if the technology in the greenhouse has to be upgraded? I've had conversations recently about like the role of facilitators. And I think that this is a place where, whether it's behind your platform or not, that we offer strategic facilitation where it's, whether it's small growers in a group or mastermind or, you know, individual large growers, like, have you thought about all the threats to your business? And you and I come in and we lead that discussion on here are different threats and here are ways to move forward. Yeah. Okay, cool. This is, this is exciting. So we've just mentioned a lot of threats that we've seen in the last couple of years. I think our homework after this episode is to make that list and come up with more threats that exist that small and medium and potentially even large growers are going to face that they're not thinking about. But we would welcome any ideas that listeners have. So if you have a threat to your business or a challenge to your business that we have not mentioned, please reach out to us so that we can include it in our thinking as we move forward. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered by new listeners. If you have questions, concerns, or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time. <laughs>